Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 31, Pope Marcellinus. Marcellinus. Yes, and clarification right up top. This is very important. This is Marcellinus, and our next pope is going to be Marcellus. So, historical confusion, source mixing. Um, I think the two will, as we go on, distinguish themselves from one another. Uh, but just prepare yourself. Marcellinus, Marcellus, two different people. Sounds like a bunch of Game of Thrones names. Yeah, kind of. And especially because they are directly back to back, it makes it a little bit more complicated. So Marcellinus is up first. <laughs> Do you know anything about Marcellinus? You know, I'm going to say no. This name doesn't ring a bell? No, I'm going to say no. And Deacon Dad's going to listen to this and he's going to be like, you know who that is. We'll see. I wonder how Deacon Dad feels about Pope Marcellinus. Let's get into it, and then we'll find out why. So, early life. What do we know about Marcellinus's early life? He was born in Rome. His father's name was Projectus, and that's it. What is he projecting? They don't even tell us, which is disappointing. I mean, we will have some popes and some figures that we'll talk about where we'll actually know what their fathers do for a living. This is not one of those times. Um, we just have to go with, he's a Christian. He joins the church. He rises through the ranks. That's all we have. All right. Starting off very, very strong, Marcellinus. You said this was going to be different, and all I'm getting is the usual junk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's coming. So Marcellinus becomes Pope on June 30th of 296, only shortly after the death of Pope Caius. And remember, even though there was some discussion about Caius being a martyr, he was pope during a time when Emperor Diocletian was okay and a little chill about Christians, allowing them to exist freely. So we don't think that's likely. We think that it was a pretty good time for Christians under Caius. And this is the environment in which Marcellinus is becoming pope. So he's going to have a time of relative peace where church membership can grow and rebuild and heal from previous brutal persecutions for a couple of years, and that's it. I mean, at least he gets a couple of years. And then <laughs> Diocletian is going to slide down the slippery slope into full-on persecution. So we're just going to briefly mention here that one of the reasons that Diocletian didn't really care much about the Christians until 302 was because Diocletian mostly lived in Antioch at the time, where Christians aren't as prevalent as they are in Rome. And of course, he was also more focused on the current annoying incendiary cult causing trouble, the Manichaeans that we talked about. Manny and friends. But um, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that Christians are entirely off the hook, because in 302, Diocletian has a deacon's tongue removed because he disrupted an official state sacrifice. Uh. This deacon, Romanus of Caesarea, would be martyred the following year as well, so um, he's turning his attention back to the Christians now. But more important than just annoying people interrupting state services is the influence of one of Diocletian's Caesar called Galerius. Now, you know, because we are not necessarily a Roman history podcast, this may not be known to all of our listeners. So Caesar 
is basically the junior role of emperor. At the time of the Roman Empire, they wouldn't have called the emperor emperor. They called them Augustus. And so the Caesar is like the junior emperor that will become the Augustus in time. And at this time in history, we're also looking at a time called the Tetrarchy because after Diocletian becomes emperor, he sets up a co-emperor, so two Augustuses, his co-emperor is Maximian, and two Caesars, Galerius and Constantius, because he believed that four emperors is what it would take for the empire to run efficiently. So we have two Augusti and two Caesars, and the one who we really need to pay attention to is Galerius. For whatever reason, Galerius is the one who's influencing Diocletian, and Galerius hates Christians, like, hates them so bad as much as a person can hate a thing. Like, is there anything you hate that is more than reasonable? Green peppers. Okay, you probably don't hate green peppers more than Galerius hates Christians. He hates them more than that, <laughs> so... In 302, Galerius persuades Diocletian to purge Christian soldiers from the army and to increase pressure against the Christians in the empire. Allegedly, after he receives advice from the Oracle of Apollo at Didyma, Diocletian takes this to the next step and begins to confiscate Christian property. And then Diocletian's palace catches fire. Oh no. Twice. Twice. And Galerius convinces Diocletian that it must have been the Christians who are conspiring for revenge against the new acts of suppression. Oh, okay. Some historians go so far as to think that maybe even Galerius started the fire just so he could blame it on the Christians. <sighs> so, yeah, um, at this point, it is game on against the Christians. Diocletian orders the raising of a brand new church in Nicomedia, which is modern-day Turkey, and starts to destroy not only church property, but as much Christian doctrine, liturgy, and books as they are able to confiscate as well. Oh, this is where, yeah, you had mentioned a couple popes ago that just all gone. Yeah, when we look back and we go, oh no, we have a lack of sources in the early church, it's probably Diocletian and Galerius' fault. They want to wipe Christian writing entirely off the face of the earth, and by February 24th of 303, they pass an official edict against the Christians, which demands that Christians are purged of any role that they occupy in the empire Churches and scriptures are subject to destruction, and that all Christians are hereby prohibited for any gathering of worship. Hmm. Not a good time. And, and this isn't the only one. We will have further edicts that will follow this one. And by the fourth edict, Diocletian goes all the way to the standby of make a sacrifice to the pagan gods or die. And by the way, this is started over entirely from scratch, so if you're somehow still alive after the first round, or you had been a lapsi who had done this, or you were a libellatici who bribed your ways to papers, you're now expected to do it all over again. A previous certificate grants you nothing. This is, this is from scratch, do it again. And this is going to be the most severe persecution that we are going to see in the history of the early church. In 305, when Diocletian and Maximian voluntarily abdicate as emperors, 
because Diocletian thought that an emperor should rule for no more than 10 years before voluntarily abdicating so that the Caesars could be elevated, Galerius and Constantius now become the Augusti, like full emperors, and it gets worse. <laughs> the Liber Pontificalis tells us that within 30 days of this switch over to Augusti, 17,000 Christians were martyred because of the new edicts of persecution. Ah, oh, dang. That is so many. And yes, I will say, it's from the Liber Pontificalis. This number is not replicated in any other source, but if it's even a little accurate, it gives us a huge scope of how awful and intense this persecution is. This is a bad time now, and we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves here because we haven't talked about Pope Marcellinus yet. But this is a massive, massive persecution, and he's going to come up against this persecution, and we know how that goes. Bad. So bad. <laughs> I mean, remember Fabian? <laughs> Poor burp man. You sounded like you said burp. <laughs> burp. I know you didn't say burp. Poor burp man. I mean, that's a title we can say for a future pope. What happens next, according to the Liber Pontificalis, which has sourced this from the Lost Acts of Marcellinus, also called the Passio of Marcellinus, is that in the second year of persecutions, Marcellinus is called up, and we have a quote. He was hailed to sacrifice that he might offer incense to the pagan gods, and he did it. Oh. The Pope has apostatized. Oh. He has Whoa. literally committed the sacrifice to the pagan gods. That's number one. Mm-hmm. He has been taken prisoner, threatened with death, and saves his life like all the other lapsi, and does what the Empire wants. And holy crap, is this ever a problem. We have never been in this situation before. No. What's his endgame? Well, to be alive? I mean, but come on. He is the Pope, and he has renounced Christianity. Mm. We have had Popes abdicate. We have had exiled popes. We have had popes face the persecution head on to become heads off. What a bad joke. Why would you do that to me? I had to slip it in there. And Why see would if you say noticed. those words to me? <laughs> well, it's true, isn't it? It is. We have never been in a position where the absolute head of the church has been the one to renounce the religion in an act of idolatry before. I don't know how to feel. I know. This is, like, fructus prohibitum has its moment. <laughs> I'm excited by this. It's not even, like, a fun one. It's like, yeah, cool, you're, you're not dead. Still adultery. Idolatry. There, that's the word. Idolatry. <laughs> I can't get it out of my mouth. It wants to be adultery, and that's wrong. Well, I mean, he would get scandal points for that, but would he get as much as renouncing the Christian faith? Probably not. Ooh, yes. So, this story is sourced to us from a number of places beyond the Liber Pontificalis and the Acts of Marcellinus. Oh, so, like, not just some made-up story. Well, well, we're gonna we're gonna cover this in detail and give Marcellinus his due. But first, we need to look at where it's recorded because it is recorded in Petilianus, who is the Donatist bishop of Constantine in Algeria in the early 400s, and his account 
shows that Marcellinus and three of his priests, Marcellus, Melchiades, and Sylvester, had given up the holy books of the church to the pagans and offered incense to the false gods. Marcellus did it too? Those three priests I just listed are three of our next four popes. Boys! Yeah, bedtime. Um, and also, you might notice there that it said that they also gave the holy books of the church to the pagans. So they're not just renouncing their religion. They're like, here, have these to destroy. <laughs> they're making your job harder. This is where we're at. But there is a pretty glaring problem with this source. And this is that Petilianus is a Donatist bishop. Donatism is a schism that we're going to deal with later in the African Episcopate. And they are going to have absolutely no reason to accurately account for the actions of a pope. Oh, okay. Today, historians see this source as being extremely unreliable and the product of rumors that had circulated throughout Africa after the inception of the Donatist Schism, but that rumors had no evidence to back them up. Even though this story persists for centuries and will show up in Rome, we have to be skeptical. All right. In fact, St. Augustine, one of the most important theologians and church historians of the entire church, let alone this time period, and a prominent anti-Donatist as well, wrote directly against Petilianus's account, and in a document literally called Against Petilian. And he disputes the whole of this apostasy story. He says, for now you go on to make mention of the bishops whom you are wont to accuse of having delivered up the sacred books, concerning whom we on our part are wont to answer. Either you fail in your proof and so it concerns no one at all, or you succeed and then it still has no concern with us. For they have borne their own burden, whether it be good or bad, and we indeed believe that it was good, but of whatever character it was, yet it was their own just as your bad men have borne their own burden and neither you theirs nor they yours. So he's coming down hard and saying, like, look, you guys have absolutely no proof. You are all being horrible, horrible, heretical schismatics. Get out of here. Don't talk about our popes. He also produces documents from the time of the alleged apostasy, which are acts of confiscation of church buildings and property. And at that time, it records only two deacons of the church having had actually apostatized at the time, so there's no record of the pope or bishops doing this, just these two deacons called Stratton and Cassius. So this is evidence in favor that maybe this did not happen for Marcellinus. But for a moment, we're going to set Augustine aside and look at the evidence that is given in support of the apostasy story and kind of cover what allegedly happened after Marcellinus became a lapsi. Because like you said, what is your end game here? The first thing that we need to deal with in this is the Council of Sinuessa, which produced a series of documents by 300 bishops who were convened to deal with Marcellinus's apostasy and idolatry. Oh, man. Yeah. You had to call 300 people. They're just like, I don't know what to do. The Pope, he has messed up. According to the documents of this council, Pope Marcellinus denied having lapsed for two days. Like, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Were you drunk? Well, would that be a better excuse? I don't, at least, like, maybe he blacked out. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Like, I don't know. 
Well, he's denying it for two days once he sobers up. But on the third day of the council, he breaks down and he admits it and submits himself to the will of the council. However, the council refused to try him or pass a sentence on him on the grounds of prima sedes e nemini indicator, or the first C is judged by none. No. Yeah, so the Pope, as the first C of the whole of the Catholic Church, therefore could not be judged by his subordinates as being guilty of anything. And then Diocletian finds out about the council and has the Pope and the bishops who attend executed. Seems pretty cut and dry, right? This is, this is pretty solid evidence that we have that, you know, there's a council, there is documents. He admitted it. Oh boy, things are going terribly. Except that this council never actually existed and the whole thing is a fake. All of these documents came from the beginning of the 6th century. They're a forgery that just sort of suddenly appears during the dispute. Is it some AU fanfiction? Um, yes. <laughs> Let's say that, yes. It kind of shows up just, just really conveniently, suddenly appears out of nowhere. Um, during a dispute between a future pope and an anti-pope. Ooh. This is Symmachus and Laurentius, so... I hate those names. Oh, yeah. You're gonna love some of the names we're coming up to in the next little bit. Oh, goodness, are you ever. So, whoever had these documents forged clearly took the old rumor of Marcellinus's apostasy and twisted it to be used for their own purposes for this critical line of the first C is judged by none. And they're using this to bolster the Pope against the claims of the anti-Pope. So, oh, how convenient we found this document from an early Pope council where they said that the first C cannot be judged by anyone. What are you doing, anti-Pope man? And that's exactly why these documents were created. And it just was very, very convenient. So the Council of Sinuesa never happened. And let's be clear about this. If Marcellinus did apostatize, there would have been some council to deal with him because this would have been the scandal of the century. Oh, it would have been wild. I can't, like, I can't even fathom. It's literally the biggest scandal that we could possibly imagine. And it will be the biggest scandal that we'll see for a long, long time. The church historians who cover the early church would have written about this in such detail. It would have been accounted down to what he was wearing. On either side, you'd have, like, the haters, and you'd have, like, probably some little fanboy who was like, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah, you would have so much. We have none of that. Literally, what we have from Eusebius says this. It says, the persecution also affected him. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Do you think he might have more to say if he apostatized? Augustine, as we said, denies that this happened quite vehemently, and Jerome says nothing. The only other possible evidence that we could look to as a potential event that happened is that Marcellinus's name is conspicuously absent from a Roman chronograph, which was initially composed in 336. His is the only papal name from that time that is missing, and he's also missing in the Martyrologium, Hieromanium, and the Codex Berensis. But if this is intentional, can we even say that? Like, is it scribal error? Is it something that's been 
reproduced over time and we just don't have him on there. Maybe they thought Marcellinus Marcellus were the same person. They could have done that. Like, why is his name twice? Exactly. So he's missing on this list. But as we've said throughout all of our early sources, absence doesn't mean that we have every single piece, right? There's always something missing. There's that. And I know we've been jumping back and forth, like, here's a source. Oh, it's fake. Here's a source. Oh, it's fake. You're just Quentin Tarantinoing me all night. Yeah, and I'm not done yet because we have to deal with the fact that Marcellinus's papacy is so deeply entwined with this apostasy rumor. So even though we can say, okay, it almost certainly didn't happen, it's not like we have stories of what exactly Marcellinus would have been doing instead of this. For the next little bit, let's pretend it happened and look back at the historical accounts of what followed after the offering of incense beyond this Council of Sinuessa. All right. So immediately following his offering, conscience hits Marcellinus as hard as papal apostasy is going to hit anyone else in the church, and he's immediately plagued with guilt and regret for his actions. He's repenting for his lapse, and within a few days, he puts himself back in front of the Roman authorities, confesses himself a Christian, and redeems himself through being martyred. This is the version we get from Kenneth A. Curtis's book, the From Christ to Constantine, The Trial and Testimony of the Early Church, and this is the most basic story. Another version from the Golden Legend has Marcellinus placing himself before a group of bishops in Campania, and this is what it says. The Pope, dressed in sackcloth, poured ashes over his head, and entered the assembly before all, confessed his sin, begging them to judge him. He then stripped himself from the priesthood and forbade them from burying his body in consecrated Christian earth, and then he took himself before the emperor for his own execution. That one comes from Robert B. Eno's book, The Rise of the Papacy. And in this version, the bishops abide by his will, and Marcellinus's corpse remained unburied for 35 or 36 days. You know, all I'm picturing is, like, Janet going, Kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me. Marbleize me. And then you could just leave her there, just like they left Marcellinus for 35 days. Yes. They just left his dead body there. That's too long. And it will stay there until a vision of St. Peter comes to the would-be papal successor, Marcellus. And here we quote from Jacobus of Vorgrain's account of the Golden Legend, where Peter says to Marcellus, Brother Marcellus, why do you not bury me? Marcellus replied, have you not yet been buried, my lord? And Peter says, I consider myself unburied as long as Marcellinus is unburied. And then Mar Marcellus says, But don't you know, my lord, that he laid a curse on anyone who buried him? And Peter says, Is it not written that he who humbles himself shall be exalted? You should have kept this in mind. Now go and bury him at my feet. And Marcellinus went straight away and carried out the orders. Is it the ghost of St. Peter, or is it a gas leak? Where are they going to have the gas leaks I don't know. in ancient Rome? Well, I mean, we know what happened at Delphi, but that's in Greece. We don't know about the toxic fumes in Rome. Are they just going and standing over Vesuvius and going, huff, huff, huff? They could be. Well, I mean, it'll give you visions of St. Peter, that's for sure. So these are the stories we have about him. So let's deal with what we can actually know by verifiable sources about Marcellinus' death. 
We know that he died in the second year of the Diocletian persecutions, which is 304, sometime in late March or early April. We don't know how he died. Martyrdom is a reasonable theory, but then there are also a lot of academic sources that don't shy away from saying that it's more likely to have just been natural causes. We don't have any reliable sources from a contemporary time or close enough that credit him with martyrdom, except these sources who say that, you know, he apostatized and then felt bad about it and then died. Eusebius only says that the persecutions affected him, so, you know, that doesn't really say death. Yeah, that doesn't really say, like, walked up to some Romans and asked them to murder him. And they honor martyrs. The, we have so many records of the popes at this time facing persecutions, facing their martyrdom honorably and, you know, with the, the glory of a crown of martyrdom. So they would say this. You know, we even get token martyrs who didn't do anything. So the fact that it's not said is a thing. But there is also a pretty lengthy Sede Vacante after Marcellinus's death, before Marsalis can actually become pope. Like, I'm talking four years before our next pope. That is so long, and that really leads us to understand how violent things are at this time. Bad time. And by the 7th century, his tomb does show up on pilgrimage itineraries. Site of reverence, martyrdom, it, it, he, he's there. It's what makes sense. It's just how it got to that point. Either way, <laughs> whether he died in persecution or apostatized and then his body was left unburied, we know that he was buried. But what a f***ed sentence. I know. But we actually know when he was buried for real, so... All right. <laughs> April 26th of 304, in the cemetery of Priscilla on the Via Solaria. And you notice that's not the catacombs of Calixtus? Well, you said that they weren't using that anymore. That it was full. They they said it was full, and then we've we've seen other popes go there. But at this point, it had been confiscated by the emperor, along with most of the Christian churches. So Giovanni Battista de Rossi, the archaeologist who led the excavation of the catacombs, believes that at this time that Galerius confiscated the cemeteries, it looks like the most important areas of the catacombs, like those filled with the most notable martyrs and popes, were blocked off and filled with earth in an attempt to protect the tombs from being desecrated once they were taken away. That's one way to do it. And he believes that this was an order by Marcellinus to protect the martyrs. Make it inconvenient. He was buried in the cemetery of Priscilla on the Via Salarium, buried next to another one of the church's most notable martyrs, Crescentius, who had a much larger and more impressive tomb. And we know this because when excavations were carried out on Crescentius's very large tomb, the small burial plot of Marcellinus was dug up in the process and identified as a bonus. Oh, it was an accident. It was an accidental find. But he does get an inscription on his tomb from the future Pope Damasus that says this. When I was a boy, your executioner made known to me thy triumphs, Marcellinus, and thine also, Peter. And this Peter is a, a priest who is also buried nearby. The mad butcher gave him this commandment, that he should sever your necks in the midst of the thickets, in order that no one should be able to recognize your grave. And he told how prepared your sepulcher with eager hands. Afterwards you lay hid in a white cave, and then Lucilla was caused to know by your goodness that it pleased you rather than to lay your sacred limbs here. 
there's going to be a lot of these popes for the next little bit that are going to get these lovely inscriptions from Damasus because he just loved to write poetry about his dead predecessor. So that's fine. Everyone needs to have a hobby. Exactly. And that's how we know where he is. So that is Marcellinus. Totally a journey. Did he? Did he not? Either way, we need to rate him and see how we feel about him. So, Papatum and Phallium. Okay, first things first. We have something for Papatum and Phallium that we didn't discuss in the episode because it didn't have a place. But during his papacy, Armenia became the first Christian state in the world in 301 under the leadership of King Tiridates III, the first official state with Christianity as its official religion. So that's kind of cool. That's something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's his fault, the Pope's fault, but, you know, it happened. We don't know if he had any personal influence, but this did happen under his papacy, and this is a pretty substantial moment, so... It is something, it is an impact of Christianity, so we should consider that for points. We're going to deal with the majority of the apostasy bit in Scandal, obviously. But we, because we're talking about the impact on Christianity and the impact on the papacy, we have to ask, what does it mean for the office of Pope to have be an apostate? Does this challenge the idea of papal infallibility? Does this weaken or cheapen apostolic succession? Should it be an automatic loss of papacy? This has led to a bunch of questions. When you when you look at this and look at articles written about Marcellinus, the questions you're going to find are, can a man be fallible while the office remains infallible? The church is going to have to continue to think this through and write about it and argue about it. And it's going to go on till 1234 when the decretals of Pope Gregory IX will officially confirm that any church figure guilty of apostasy loses their office immediately. And very clearly, they do not make an exception for Pope on that list. Up until 1234, they're going to debate what this story means. And, you know, current historians and theologians believe that Marcellinus's actions, if they were true, don't actually tarnish papal infallibility because it demonstrates the duality of the office, you know, the flawed man and the divine and incorruptible will of God. And we're going to come back to that a lot. When we think about the papal impact here, we have to consider the fact that whether or not it's true, this story affects the church for like 900 years still. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, not everybody can walk up to certain death and be like, yeah, cool. Absolutely. I mean, that would be very, very difficult. We've seen how many lapsi there are. And finally, for this category, we also need to consider that his papacy is the one that's credited with establishing this precedence of no one judges the first seat, even though this didn't actually happen during his papacy. But it's a huge sticking point, and it reflects the desires of Pope Symmachus in the future. And it'll be a message for the church will push all the way up to unum sanctum as a reinforcement of papal authority as the prime temporal authority, period. So we may give him points for that, but I'm leaning towards no. What do you think he gets for Papatum and Valium here? All right, I'm going to give him one point for just having a Christian state pop up. 
because I have played a civilization game, and sometimes they just sort of pop up. Like, you've converted somebody, but it's been, like, it wasn't you. It was, like, seven turns ago. Um. Right, right. But it still happened. Um, and then I want to give him a point for shoving a bunch of dirt in the tombs and making it inconvenient. That's a good thing. Good thing to consider there. All right, so you're going to give him two points? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to give him anything for making everybody feel unsure and bad. That's fair. I, I'm going to give him a point for the for the Christian state as well. I am going to give him a point for this papal infallibility discussion, because whether or not he was on the good side of that impact or not, because honestly, I don't believe that he apostatized. Personally, I don't think that there's enough sources to say that he did, but his papacy brings this issue to light all the way up to one of the most important documents of the church, Unum Sanctum. This is huge. Would this have existed if this had never been called into question under Pope Marcellinus? Hard to say. I mean, it probably would because popes want power, but I'm setting the precedent here and I'm going to have to give him a point for that. So he's going to get a two from me as well. And that'll give him a four for Papatum and Thallium. Let's get to his category. Fructus Prohibitum. I'm going to start this off with the definition of apostasy, because we've been talking about it, but we have not said this directly. Apostasy is a total repudiation of the Christian faith. So if this weren't scandal points, I don't know what is. Even though we know it's not true, we can judge him based on this legend, because it's the first time we have juicy scandals. It is. I I love it. It's so huge. We we don't even know how to react to it, because it's so huge. I I, want to expand on this a little bit because there are many comparisons that are drawn between Pope Marcellinus and Peter. And this is why the vision of Peter shows up in the story. It's the denial of Christ and Christianity for fear of one's own life. Obviously, this has been seen as a forgivable offense since the literal appointed successor by Christ himself. So how do we feel about this? You have to remember, we've scored Peter really, really high, and one of those reasons was public denial of Christ, so... Yeah, and I don't... <sighs> and being compared to Peter for us is not a good thing. No, and, well, Peter wasn't Pope when he did that, too, so, like... Yeah, but he denied Jesus, like, to his face. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's not good. You know, I have I have more that I could say on this about if it isn't true, because then he was at least, you know, safe, and are we seeing a Pope that's bribing the rest of the government to keep him safe. That's gross, too. Yeah, um, there's all of those things to consider, but, like, for me, this is a 10. He is absolutely getting a 10, so... Oh, you're giving him a 10? 100%! I'm like, I only want to give him, like, a 7. All right, you can do that. I will remind you that our scores for Peter were uh, 14 in this category, so he he would rank higher, and that'd be good. Yes, because he does, he does, in fact, need to rank higher than Peter. <laughs> I think Peter's still our top scoring uh, pope because of his scandal score, so. Also because he was pope for, like, five ever. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is, this is big one. Even if it's not true, this is, this is what he's known for. And that's the thing. Like, if it's not true, oh well, you get points for it anyway, so. I think that balances it out. So that gives him a 17 for Fructus Prohibitum, which is, our highest score yet. Our highest fruit is prohibitive. We've had so many zeros. 
Yeah, we have had so many zeros. I'm looking at the scores that have been given. There's a 14, a 1, a 2, a 7, a 6, a 4, a 6, and a 17. So it just seems like we're doing it right then. So seculari impactum. There is really nothing about his papacy that has anything to do with the secular population other than being victims. But he has been preserved in modern fiction in a book called Sword and Serpent, a historical retelling of St. George and the Dragon by Dr. Taylor Marshall. It's a historical fiction novel. It seems like it's got some of the fantasy aspects to it. I discovered this through a blog post on his website that this author, Taylor Marshall, was talking about Pope Marcellinus. So I have his quote on the website, which says, I incorporated Pope Marcellinus into my best-selling historical fiction novel, Sword and... Thank you, Bellinora. Sword! (laughs) Sword and Serpent. Um, This novel features St. George visiting Pope Marcellinus hiding in a cavern-like catacomb and receiving a sword from him, which will eventually become the sword of King Arthur, so... Popes in caves distributing swords. It's out there, and I I have no idea if it's any good. I'd love to read it just for this, but this is the first time we've seen, like, popes in popular media, besides, like, Peter. So, exciting. (laughs) Do you want to give him anything for it? Um, no. Alright, I'll give him a one. Just because I found it, and I was like, ooh, a pope man in a book. Because, like, anything I would give him, like, a half point, and that's, we can't do halvesies, so. Exactly, so... That That is fair. Let's see if his face says anything about him. Is it going to be a hot face like last time? That Pope was real hot. <laughs> yeah, but he was also not an old white man. So those are going to be the combo breakers. So here we go. This is the one we're going to uh, rate him on. <laughs> it's on a weird like PowerPoint slide. I, I looked for like our images that we always use, and this is the only version I could find of it. So uh, here you go. Perfect. I love this photo because if you look at his face, he just looks so disappointed with himself. He looks real tired. He's just done with it. So uh, that's that's him. What do you want to give him? I He's so tired looking. But he's not grumpy looking, which is different. And so disappointed and so over it all. So He's been dead since 300. So do you think he deserves any points? I'll give him, like, a three. Three is what I'm thinking as well, but, you know, I think just for the expression that is so perfectly in telling with his story that I'm going to give it, I'm going to bump it up to a five, and that'll give him an eight, which, when divided by four, gives him a score of two. Tempus Pontificus. From June 30th of 296 to 304, which is Eight years and a score of two. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Yes, he is a saint. Despite all of this, he is a saint. He has a feast day on April 26th, mentioned in the general Roman calendar. He's honored with St. Cletus, not Anacletus. His feast was removed for both in 1969 with the calendar thing. Um, but St. Cletus remains in the Roman martyrology, whereas Marcellinus isn't. He is not a patron saint, which is not very surprising because who wants the apostate pope? So I think we need to make him one. Let me think. Poor Marcellinus. 
It's true. He's just been like so defamed throughout time. But I think we've kind of done the defamation thing. So like, what could he represent? Burning bridges. Okay, we could do that. He can be the patron saint of burning bridges because, you know, he represents the burning of bridges between Christianity and pagan. He represents the what's coming up with the Donatists. Yeah, all right, we can go with that. He's the patron saint of burning bridges. It's not something you want to invoke. <laughs> no. But he's there if you need him. <laughs> I was trying to go for the the whole, like, human self-destruction but like not not in an annihilation sort of way yeah i mean that works yeah it's it's a little bit self-sabotage but i think burning bridges is the perfect way to like put it out there so that's him now and now we need to look at his total score which thanks to that beefy scandal score is a reputable 27 Ooh, 27 that is, that is really good uh the only recent pope that scored higher than him is Dionysius, which is good. People really liked Dionysius. We've had a couple 27s, so we have uh, Cornelius and Fabian both scored 27, although Fabian got us at 27.5. Yeah, I mean, that puts him in a pretty good spot, and I think that that's fair because he is very memorable. This is not a pope we are forgetting. And that is a perfect segue for me to ask you, is he popey enough? Is he papely enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? And has he made an impression on you to be worthy of a papal bull? And we might have a fight on our hands here. I have to say no. Oh, I'm 100% wanting to give it to him. So we need to go to divine intervention to see if Marcellinus is redeemed. I got a new dice. Don't roll it yet. So for if you are listening... And for the first time, and you don't know how we do divine intervention here, uh, we have the d20. And mm -hmm. if we roll a 1 to 10, they go to purgatory. If we roll a 10 to 20, um, they are straight into the papal bull. And uh, we haven't decided what we're doing with the popes who get a natural 20, but maybe they get a bonus point or something. So. so I bought a whole bunch of new dice, so you can pick, I guess, which one you want me to use. You you got a whole bunch of D20s? I have four different D20s now. I have the oh. one we've been using, which is kind of a green acidy color. I have one that is a rainbow between green, yellow, pink, and blue. I have one that is Neapolitan colored that I didn't actually order. <laughs> it is kind of ugly. And then I have a straight, like, swirly blue one. Okay, because... Of poor Pope Marcellinus's status in the church, we are going with the Neapolitan one that you didn't order and is kind of ugly. <laughs> it's so because ugly. It's so fitting and we will remember it. So let's see what divine intervention has let's to say. Use this for ugly Neapolitan dice. <laughs> he got a 14. Woo! He made it in! That's a papal bull for Pope Marcellinus. And, you know, I think in this case, well-deserved because we will not forget him anytime soon. So, all right. On that note, we are on to thank yous. So this week, we need to thank our listeners. Seriously, we just hit 50,000 downloads on the day of recording, which is January 16th. Our podcast has existed for less than eight months. Next week is our eight-month anniversary. I'm glad you're keeping track of that, because I'm not. Oh, I so am, because 
that's what I do. So thank you so, so much for everybody who has downloaded even a single episode of our Humble Popey podcast. That is so cool. It just, it absolutely blows our mind. Holy cow. <laughs> Not a papal bull, but holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and we need to thank Rex Factor, our inspiration, Totalis Rankium, our greatest mentors, supporters, and artists and graphic designers, because they are helping us out so much. And all of our other podcast friends that have been supporting us and getting the word out, it is because of you guys that people have found us. I am sure of this. And the reviews. If you're leaving five-star reviews, thank you so much. That is so, so cool. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. With that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.